So open up your Bibles to the book of Ruth. With such a short book, only four chapters, I wondered um, whether I should do an introduction to it or just start in teaching it. But this morning I want to I want to do an introduction to it to kind of help you get a big sense of the big picture of the book of Ruth. And really to answer the question, why should we study Ruth? I mean, it's a nice story. But why should we study Ruth? Maybe a more uh, profound question is, is why did God put Ruth in the Bible? It wasn't just to entertain us and to give us a, a story that where everybody, the story ends happily ever after. So I'd like to begin this morning uh, by reading Ruth in its entirety. It'll take us about 15 minutes. But it's important for you to see the whole story because the author of Ruth gave us this as a complete story. It's really intended to be read in one sitting. And so at least in one of our services, I want to do just that. So we'll read it together. So you follow along as I read aloud. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Ruth. Now it happened in the days when the judges judged. That there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the fields of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they came to the fields of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. And the woman was left without her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the fields of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people to give them food. So she went forth from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May Yahweh show loving kindness with you as you have shown with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. She Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is more bitter for me than for you. For the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, 
Do not press me to forsake you and turning back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me and more, if anything but death separates you and me. So she saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more to her. Then they both went until they came to Bethlehem. Now it happened when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but Yahweh has caused me to return empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Yahweh has answered against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity against me. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the fields of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of excellence of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one whom I may find favor in his eyes. And he said to her, Go, my daughter. So she went. And she came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And it so happened that she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May Yahweh be with you. And they said to him, May Yahweh bless you. Then Boaz said to his, to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The young man in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the fields of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Have you not heard, my daughter? Do not go to glean in another field. Therefore do not go on from this one, but stay here with my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the young men not to touch you. And if you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the young men draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, though I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully told me, told to me, and how you forsook your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May Yahweh fully repay your work and may your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, May I find favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken to the heart of your servant woman, though I am not like one of your servant women. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. 
Then she rose to glean, and Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean, even among the sheaves, and do not dishonor her. Also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles, and leave it so that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her mother, to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of Yahweh, who has not forsaken his loving kindness to the living and to the dead. Then Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our kinsmen, redeemers. Then Ruth, a Moabite, said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, so that others do not oppress you in another field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz in order to glean until the end of barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek a state of rest for you, that it may be well with you? And now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose young women you were? Behold, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. So you shall wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes. You shall go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Let it be that when he lies down, you shall know the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you should, shall do. She said to her, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. And Boaz ate and drank, and his heart was merry, and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Then it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant, so spread your wing over your maidservant, for you are a kinsman, redeemer. And then he said, May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last loving kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So now, my daughter, do not fear. All that you say I will do for you, for all my people within the gates of the city know that you are a woman of excellence. But now it is true. I am a kinsman redeemer. However, there is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. Stay this night, and it will be in the morning, that if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not desire to redeem you, then I will redeem you, as Yahweh lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Give me the cloak that is on you, and hold it. So she held it. And he measured six measures of barley, and placed it on her, then she went into the city. Then she came to her mother-in-law and said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. 
She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty. Then she said, Sit then, my daughter, until you know how the matter falls into place. For the man will not remain quiet until he has finished the matter today. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the kinsman redeemer of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, my fellow, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Then he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the fields of Moab, has to sell the portion of the field which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to uncover this matter in your hearing, saying, Acquire it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if no one redeems it, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the one who had died, in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance. So the kinsman redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the right of redemption and the exchange of land to establish any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Acquire this for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have acquired all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon from the hand of Naomi. And also I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance, so that the name of the one who had died will not be cut off from his brothers or from the gate of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And all the people who were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh grant the woman who is coming into your house to be like Rachel and Leah, both of whom who built the house of Israel, so you shall achieve excellence in Ephrathah and shall proclaim your name in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah through the seed which Yahweh will grant you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and Yahweh granted her conception, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is Yahweh, who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer today, and may his name be proclaimed in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of your soul and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and put him on her bosom and became his nurse. The women became the, the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, "A son has been born to Naomi." So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez became the father of Hazron. And Hezron became the father of Ram. And Ram became the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab became the father of Nashon. And Nashon became the father of Salmon. And Salmon became the father of Boaz. 
And Boaz became the father of Obed. And Obed became the father of Jesse. And Jesse became the father of David. So now you've heard the story of Ruth. Its progressions, its problems, its developments, its solution. There's no cliffhangers. But I'm convinced the book of Ruth was designed to be read in one sitting. Um, why should we study a book like this? Again, it's a, it's a wonderful story. At least it ends wonderfully. It doesn't start wonderfully. But it ends wonderfully. Why should we, why should we um, study a book that's 3,000 years old? Why should we study a book? Like when we have the New Testament, you know, as, as Christians, we tend to spend most of our study time in the New Testament and, and for reasons uh, that are clear. It's, it's, it's a fuller picture. It's a clear picture of what God wants us to know. But there is something called the Old Testament, what some prefer to call the First Testament. It's, it's the part of the Bible that we tend to neglect. Right? Now, Ruth is probably one of the most... Um, most widely read books of the Old Testament, but it still gets neglected. Why should we study a book that's 3,000 years old approximately? What does it have to teach us today? Well, quite a bit. I'm going to give you five compelling reasons why we need to study Ruth. These aren't exhaustive and uh, not original with me. The first thing I want, to, I want to put forth, the first reason to study Ruth is because of its contribution to the canon of Scripture. Its contribution to the canon of Scripture. I use the word canon when I'm talking about it's a collection of, of writings. It is part of Scripture. It is part of Scripture. Um, whoever wrote the book of Ruth uh, wanted to remain anonymous. And he likely didn't give the book the name Ruth. And, and the reason for that is it's, it's quite surprising. It's quite surprising that there's a, even a book called Ruth. Why is that? Well, there's only two books of the Bible that are named after women. Right? Ruth is one, what's the other? Esther. Right? Esther was a Jew. Is Ruth a Jew? She's not a Jew. So out of only two books of the Bible that are named after women, one of them is named after a Jewess, right? Esther, but the other one is Ruth the Moabitess. And the fact that she is a Moabitess is emphasized. Hopefully you picked up on that. Every time, almost every time her name is mentioned, it's Ruth the Moabitess. So that's surprising. And it's also surprising because if you read the story, it's a, Ruth really shines forth. Right? She, is, she is one of the examples of, of faithfulness, of covenantal faithfulness to Naomi, but also to to God and, and to her community, to Boaz. She's an example of that. But you know what? The story is really not about her. Did you notice that? I mean, it involves her. But at the end of the story, she just kind of like, she kind of fades out. The, the, the story is really about Naomi. So as far as the storyline, it should be the book of Naomi because it begins with, Naomi's being Naomi being emptied, using her words, she went out full, but she came back emptied. And then it's about at the end, and she finds she finds she's refilled, she's redeemed, and her life is full again in, in a way that it never was when she left. But if you look at the dialogue of the book of Ruth, right, the narrator has done a, a marvelous job, not only 
giving you the facts. I mean, he could give you the facts in probably one chapter. But what he does is he interspersed some facts with a lot of dialogue of what they actually said. And if you if you look at the amount of dialogue, Boaz actually says the most of anybody. So we could call it the book of Boaz, but it's not. It's called the book of Ruth, almost consistently called the book of Ruth. And really his testimony to the Lord's grace and including somebody from the tribe of Moab into his covenantal family and into uh, sacred scripture. Now, whoever wanted to write this book of Ruth well, was a literary master. Even secular story writers will say the book of Ruth is a masterpiece in the way that it is written. And whoever wrote it wanted to remain anonymous. He didn't name himself and he left no clues. You know, we can go to the Gospel of John and we know that, that, that John wrote the Gospel of John, but he didn't name himself like some of the other authors. But he did leave us hints, right? So we're pretty sure that John wrote the Gospel of John. But with Ruth, there, there are just no clues in this little story as to who wrote it. Uh, scholars, some scholars say Samuel wrote it. That Samuel wrote it to explain the rise of King David. Now there, but there are problems with that. And others would say, no, Nathan, the prophet, who was a prophet during uh, David's reign, who the same prophet who confronted uh, David's sin with Bathsheba, that know that Nathan wrote this as a defense for the Davidic kingship. But there are problems with that too. Others say, no, this is uh, this book was written in the post-exilic times. So uh, in the days of Josiah, good King Josiah. Right? So Josiah is the only king of Israel who's really compared to the great kingdom of that David had, had uh, reigned with. Right? So Again, are those possibilities? Yes. But they have to just remain theories because we have no idea. And the good news is we don't really need to know uh, in order to to understand the story and uh, to understand what God wants us to understand. And really because we don't know who wrote it with any certainty, we also don't know when it was written with any certainty. The book of Judges, I mean, the book of Ruth opens up with this statement, now it happened in the days when the judges judged. Right? We'll dig into the details later, but when the word judges used, it's not talking about a courtroom judge. This is talking about the book of Judges judges. Uh, they were redeemers. They were imperfect redeemers. Many of them had massive faults. Think Samson. Right? Think Gideon. Right? Those are judges. Think Deborah, right? the one woman judge. Right? So those are the days of the judges judge. Why is that significant? Well, just look at Judges chapter... 21 verse 25. Judges 21 verse 25. How the book ends really gives you its entire theme. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. So you think that today it's dark days or difficult days. It's really not as bad as what the environment that Ruth and Obad and Naomi lived in. Because this beautiful story of Ruth takes place in the dark days of the Judges. And I'm talking about dark, I'm talking spiritually dark. I'm talking, the book of Judges has several R-rated scenes if they were made into movies. Right? So you don't want to read them with your young children. They're that bad. Okay? 
that's the days of the judges and those are the those dark days are are the, the environment that Ruth lives in or lived in um, the interesting thing is so we know that 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 whoever wrote the book of Ruth because of that phrase in the days when the judges judged he is writing not in the days when the judges judged right he's looking back at the days when the judges judged so he's he has some some perspective there's some amount of time that has passed in other words he's living he's writing in the time of the kings not the judges right whatever that might be whether it's king david whether it's samuel or nathan writing while king david is still on the throne or whether it's some other person that wrote it later on um for example when josiah was king we're not, again we're not sure but they had some perspective and we know that there's a um a significant amount of time because of a statement made in chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7, the statement is made, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the right of redemption and the exchange of land to establish any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the matter. This is the manner of attestation in Israel. So the author, as he's writing this, has to, has to interrupt his flow to explain a custom. He wants to explain why this this unnamed redeemer takes a sandal off and gives it to Boaz. That would not have been understandable to the original audience. So the author explains it, which means there's enough time between when actually when Ruth actually occurred, the story of Ruth, and when the writer wrote that that custom had been lost, the meaning had been lost. So again, that that just tells you there's a certain amount of time. We we can't. Be certain of the of the timing on that. And again, we don't need to, just like we don't need to on the author. There have been no serious challenges to accepting Ruth as part of Scripture, as part of the canon of Scripture. And as such, that it contains message messages from the Lord that we need to learn. Um, and since it's part of Scripture, it's got something to teach us. So you could you could use this line of argument with any book in the Bible. Right? But I'm specifically applying it to the book of Ruth today. Because Ruth is in your Bible, it has a message for you that you absolutely need to understand. God wants you to understand it. Uh, just, just think about this, the book of Ruth through the lens of 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Let me just read that to you. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. There, the Apostle Paul says, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the man of God there is specifically referring to to Timothy and to pastors, but it applies to every single Christian. So every, every book of Scripture has something for us. So that means that, that Ruth is Scripture from God, uh, we need to be instructed by Ruth. We need to be reproved by Ruth. We need to be corrected by Ruth. And we need to be trained in righteousness by Ruth. So that's what the Lord would have us. Those are the lenses by which we, we look at this book, even though it's old. So we're, as we're talking about Ruth as a part of Scripture, it's interesting on the placement of Ruth. Now, Ruth is the eighth book in your Bible. And it is so because uh, largely because it follows the what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Just to give you a little refresher, why, why is there such a thing as the Septuagint? 
Well, the Jews eventually lost the use of the Hebrew language. And only a few Jews could, could read Hebrew and, and speak Hebrew. And so in order to, to continue to the teaching of the Word of God, they translated the Old Testament into Greek. And the Septuagint is what it's called. That's, that was the, the scriptures of Jesus' day was Septuagint. Right? So it, that, the Septuagint places Ruth between Judges and, and Samuel. Right? And so in the Hebrew Bible, first and second Samuel kind of run together. We separate them into first and into two books, first and second Samuel. Right? Why is that placement important? Well, it's the right place chronologically. Right? Ruth opens up and says, In the days when the judges judged, right? How does Samuel how does Samuel open up? Beginning to talk about kings. And Ruth's even important here because it talks about just not any king but King David. So Ruth is a transition between the dark days of the judges and really the bright, shining hope of Israel. Now, some of you will think, well, David's not such a bright, shining hope. Well, you're right. Let me give you a big picture. David is was Israel's best king. No one rose to the level of David. And yet, even David failed massively. David could not lead Israel in righteousness. Ultimately. Why? Pointing, it points to the need of a truly righteous king. The one who would come. And it points to Jesus Christ being the son of David. Right? Needing to come and rule in righteousness and lead his people in righteousness. That said, Understand that David is Israel's, was Israel's best king. It's most righteous king. Again, only Josiah even came close to, to King David. And so Ruth is placed there to try to explain how do you get from the idolatrous, the um, really just nasty environment of the judges to the brightness of Israel where you have the tabernacle and you have God dwelling um, with Israel and working in Israel's midst. How, how do you get there on a national basis? And it also explains something interesting. You know, the, the Samuel opens up from talking about which king? King David? No. Right? Saul. Who is King Saul? Well, Saul was the people's choice. So again, God allowed that. But Saul was the people's choice. What tribe is Saul from? Not Judah. Benjamin. He's a Benjamite. Why is that important? Go back to the book of Judges. There is a massive revolution in Israel. Uh, not revolution. Um, uh, civil war is, a, is, is the better term to use. The Benjamites did something very nasty. and They refused to repent of it. And so the other tribes went to war with the Benjamites and nearly wiped them out. Wiped them out so much that some of the Benjamite men who left had to steal wives, steal women, wives from some of the other tribes in order to survive. There weren't enough women to survive. That's the tribe that King Saul comes from. But King David comes from the tribe of Judah. So there's there's this interplay. There's There's a reason why the author mentions Bethlehem 
so many times in this little story. Bethlehem's also mentioned in the book of Judges. Right? So again, you, you, in reading Ruth, Ruth interacts not just as an isolated story, but Ruth is, is interacting with both Judges and with Samuel. And, and you can make a case, even a looking back, there's some shadows of, of interaction with the book of Genesis as well, some parallels uh, to help us understand what's going on in, in Ruth. And I'll point out some of these things as we go into it. So the, the, the book of Ruth is rightly placed in our Bibles chronologically between Judges and between 1 Samuel. The interesting thing is, it's not placed there in the Hebrew Bible. It's not a, there are different, different Hebrew Bibles, um, so there's, this is not a, a unified um, testimony. But generally speaking, Ruth, if you've got a Hebrew Bible today um, and looked at where Ruth is placed, Ruth is not in the historical or narrative section. Ruth is placed towards the end of the Hebrew Bible with the wisdom literature. Wisdom literature meaning Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Ruth is placed there. Kind of a strange place, right? But there's there's something very interesting here. The There's a linkage, and it makes sense. Um, there is an important link between Ruth and the Proverbs 31 woman that you may never have noticed before because of where Ruth sits in your Bible. Um, if you would, just turn in your Bibles to, to, to Proverbs 31. So turn to probably the middle of your Bible to find Psalms. Keep going to the right until you find Proverbs and then go to the end of Proverbs. Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 is famous because it, it provides the characteristics of what's called the excellent wife. Um, let me just read a few of these for you. Beginning at verse 10, an excellent wife. An excellent wife who can find. Her worth is far above pearls. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and she will have no lack of gain. She de deals bountifully with him for good and not evil all the days of her life. She searches for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She, she brings food from afar. She rises while it is still night and gives food to her household and a portion to her young women. Um, she makes pl plans for a field and buys it. From the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Look at verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits with the elders of the land. Verse 25. Strength and majesty are her clothing and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom and in the instruction of loving kindness is on her tongue. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. As for her husband, he praises her. He also praises her, saying, Many daughters have done excellently, but you have gone above them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears, fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. Give to her from the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Now what's interesting about this is the woman of excellence is held up um, with all these, these descriptions, but that term excellence is never attributed to the to any particular woman outside the book of Ruth. 
Ruth is the only woman in the entirety of Scripture, right, to have that word used of her, of excellence. Now, I'm sure it would be used of Mary, um, to, to describe Mary, the mother of Jesus as well, another woman that, that God used to, to, to bring about the Messiah. But it is very interesting that, that the, this word, this phrase, this description is only used of Ruth. In, in Ruth chapter 3, verse 1, Boaz tells Ruth of the rumors. Boaz heard rumors about Ruth. And here with, here's what he tells us what they were. He says, so now, my daughter, do not fear. All that you say I will do for you. For all my people within the gates of the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Right? So although there were struggles, Naomi didn't want Ruth to come. Right? Naomi must have been talking. She must have been talking really good stuff about Ruth. And that, that word got around and Boaz got word of it. So he had heard about Ruth before he met Ruth. And it's not hard to see Ruth doing many of the activities of the Proverbs 31 woman. She's virtuous. She's hardworking. You know, she, she goes to the field to glean. Now, none of us have ever gleaned. But that's not easy work. She wasn't afraid of work. And she went early in the day. And she stayed with it all day. Not just to provide for her, but to provide for Naomi. So that kind of faithfulness is why Ruth is called a woman of excellence. So this that's why in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is placed after Proverbs 31 to help you get the linkage. Right? It's not chronologically in the right place, but it's put there for a theological reason. That Ruth is the woman of excellence. So sometimes you think about you might say the Proverbs 31 woman and say, yeah, it's a great ideal, but has anyone ever lived it? Yes. More than one. But we're given one example in Scripture that you can know for sure, and that's Ruth. Pretty pretty neat. And then there's one other, one other tie-in I want, I want to point out to you as far as the Scripture, the scriptural aspect of Ruth, and that is the genealogy that we find in Matthew. Some scholars consider the genealogy at the end of Ruth as something that was added by a later by a later editor. There's all this nice, you know, there's the narrator's comments and there's the dialogue, and then all of a sudden at the end of Ruth, we have these kind of a break and all that, and it says, now here's the generations of Perez, and then you just have this genealogical record. So a lot of scholars say, well, that that seems like a, an addition, a late addition. It's not. It's not at all. And we know that that it wasn't an ad- addition because it helps explain the rise of David. What name is last in the line? It's not giving you just a historical list of everything, of everybody that ever lived. This is very intentional. Names are excluded. Names are included. There are ten generations. That's not by accident. The seventh in the generation is Boaz. That's not by accident. That's very intentional. But the end of the list, his name is David. The last word at Ruth is David. There's a reason for that. There's a theological reason explaining the rise of David. So we'll get more into the genealogies when we study that part of the of Ruth. But just know that that this genealogy of Ruth is then picked up in the New Testament in Matthew. The only other place where Boaz is mentioned is um, in Matthew's genealogical record of Jesus. He's Matthew gives a genealogy from Abraham uh, through Ruth and Boaz all the way up until Mary. Okay, 
So he provides that. So, and it's interesting that Matthew includes, specifically mentions three women. There's one woman that's not mentioned by name, and that's Bathsheba, right? So he just simply mentions that that her of Uriah, right? So uh, again, just pointing to some of the uh, the shadowiness of the unlikeliness of the of the people that God chose to include in His genealogy and in, in Christ's genealogy, right? But you have Tamar. We'll look at her later because she's also mentioned. You have Tamar, right? That's not a bright spot in Israel's history, but God nonetheless used her, right, to bring about the Messiah. Then you've got Rahab, the harlot. Now she didn't remain a harlot. She came to faith, and you know this is the days of Joshua. Um, but she be- she marries and becomes part of the genealogical record leading to the Messiah. And then you have Ruth. Just think about the, the marvelous nature of what of God's grace. The fact that Ruth appears here, a Moabitess, appears in the lineage of not only King David, but ultimately of Jesus Christ. Right? Um, so R- Ruth is a, a is part of Scripture. Study it. Um, you should study Ruth secondly because it's a marvelous story you can easily remember. Right. Even though you, you might have only read Ruth one time, just that one time we read it, you could probably tell me the general story of it. You can remember the, the general plot line. You may not be able to, re, to remember much of the dialogue, but you remember the general plot line. And, and so God chose this particular format, this narrative story with lots of dialogue in order to teach us truth. This wasn't by accident. He's given us a story that you can read it, you can study it, and then you can remember it. Right? That is important. It is important to the the saints in of old. It's important for us today. You don't always have your Bible with you, right? So this is one way to remember when difficult things, uh, difficult times come. Right? Remember the story of Ruth. Um, you know, Ruth is not only a memorable story; it's a well-written story. It's written as um, a short story. When I use the word story, don't think I'm using it like. Uh, Toy Story, right? Toy Story is a movie all made up, all fictional. When I use the word story, short story, I, I mean real life. But it is a story. It's it's selective, it's short, it doesn't give you all of Naomi's life or all of Ruth's life or all of Boaz's life. It's just a, a short story. But it's told in, in an amazing way and it's interesting that it comes in four acts. So it's almost written like a drama, right? In four acts and each of those acts... Um, each of those has like four, three different scenes within each one. It, you can break it out. So the author, again, was a master storyteller, knew what he was doing. Um, the, the, um, again, the, why you should study Ruth is it'll help you remember some very profound theology right, that we're going to talk about next. The third compelling reason you should study Ruth is that it shows you examples of faithfulness while living in an unfaithful culture. It shows you examples of faithfulness while living in an unfaithful culture. I kind of already, already uh, hinted at this. Um, so you have you have Naomi dealing with some very difficult things. She doesn't respond so well in the beginning, but she responds well later. She demonstrates faithfulness to Ruth uh, by trying to arrange a marriage for her. In those days, you have to understand. Very different from our own. An unmarried woman was very vulnerable. 
not only vulnerable, but she didn't necessarily have a roof over her head. It would be hard to put a roof over your head. It would be hard to provide. Right? So uh, to provide Naomi's goal, her prayer, her aim is to provide rest for Ruth. And he provide rest for her by providing a husband for her. So Naomi isn't focused on her own well-being. You see, she's focused on Ruth and trying to take care of Ruth. Um, and then you have Ruth herself. Ruth is just an amazing testimony of God's grace. I mean, here you have this Moabitess woman. She was married to a, to um, to Malon, uh, and for probably about ten years. We don't know the exact time frame, but they were in Moab ten years. A, a good portion of that, they she was married to him. Whatever she knew of Yahweh just came from the family. How they lived that out, um, and it's interesting. You have Elimelech that leaves Israel, goes to Moab. Um, by the way, Ruth is full of, the book of Ruth is full of like a lot of ironic things. Um, Elimelech, his name means God is king. Well, isn't it strange that Elimelech has to go to Moab to find food? Um, isn't God king? Can't God provide? In the end, that's true. God does provide. Um, there's another irony, Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the meaning of the name means house of bread. Right? But there's a famine in Bethlehem. Um, so, another irony is that the fact that he of Ruth, a Moabitess who didn't grow up, learning about Yahweh, right, demonstrates such covenantal faithfulness to Naomi, right? And in the end, covenantal faithfulness to God. Uh, she repeatedly demonstrates a loyal love for Naomi. How did how did um, how did Ruth have faith in Yahweh like this? I mean, the Israelites grew up with knowing, learning about God. They grew up with hearing about God's God's these mighty acts that He had done in rescuing them from Egypt. Ruth did grow up with that. How, how is it that she came to faith like that? God's gracious choice. God plucked Ruth out of the land of Moab and, and chose to use her. There's something very interesting if you study the genealogy, genealogical records, um, you know, especially with Matthew, looking at all of the unlikely characters that God uses. That should encourage you. Right? God doesn't usually use the ones you would pick, he selects somebody different often. Often the ones we would not select. But she, so she's a she's a test she's testimony to God's gracious choice. And she repeatedly demonstrates loyal love for Naomi. Just let me recount you for you. She refuses, she refuses to leave Naomi. She clings to her. Right? And and by the way, what about Orpah? There's no condemnation about Orpah. Orpah does makes a decision that most normal people would make. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Orpah. She makes a decision that normal people would make. You'd go back to your parents and let Naomi go on her way. That's that's what you would expect. Um, there's actually no condemnation for Elimelech. I mean, a lot of there's a lot of condemnation on Elimelech in Jewish writing. They say he should have stayed in Israel. He shouldn't have gone. And they're really harsh on Elimelech. But notice there's no condemnation of Elimelech in the story. 
God knows how to bring condemnation when he wants to do that. The Bible's full of it, right? So in this case, God doesn't condemn Elimelech. Is Elimelech's death the result of his going to, to Moab? I don't know. But I also know that there's no condemnation of Elimelech for that. The story doesn't tell us that. But again, there are the commentaries, especially more particular Jewish ones, who are very harsh on Elimelech. And then they're very harsh on Malon and Kilion for marrying Moabitess, Moabitesses, for marrying outside the Jewish family. But again, the scripture is silent. There's no condemnation on them for that. Through this, I emphasize uh, Ruth's faithfulness. She refuses to leave Naomi. She claims Naomi's people as her own. She came, claimed Naomi's land as her own. She claims Naomi's God as her own. She goes to glean barley for her. She doesn't sit just in, in, in the, you know, in, in a house wherever they were staying and say, well, Naomi, this is your town. You provide. No, she's taking the initiative. She's going out to, to the harvest fields and she's going to provide for not only herself, but for Naomi. And then another faithfulness is that she chooses to pursue Boaz in marriage. Right? That wasn't just for Ruth's sake. Boaz was the near kinsman to um, Naomi. So Ruth is not just pursuing Boaz for Boaz's sake. Ruth is pursuing Boaz for Naomi's sake. And so Naomi and Ruth are, are demonstrating how you put the interest of others is more important than your own. Then look about Boaz. He repeatedly responds with royal love, with loyal love for Ruth and Naomi. He's not the closest redeemer. Who is the closest redeemer? Again, another irony of the story. We don't know. The, the way the Hebrew is worded, it really should be translated like Mr. So-and-so. Like in chapter 4, Mr. So-and-so comes by and talks to Boaz. Okay? That's intentional. The one who thought he wasn't going to redeem Ruth because he was afraid he would lose his inheritance is nameless in history now. But the one who sacrificed and said, I'll, I'll make that payment. You, you know his name. His name is Boaz. Another irony. But he, he allows her to glean, and not just at the edges of the field, but he, he instructs his workers to pull out some of, the, some of the good stuff for her to find more easily. He protects her. He tells the, the men not to touch her. Why would he do that? Remember, there is no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And women were often treated very harshly and abused. It's particularly single women. And Boaz would have none of that. He protected her. A Moabitess. He feeds her. He even serves her. He's the landowner. He's the rich, wealthy landowner. And she's the poor uh, kind of vagabond who's just, just barely eking along. The normal thing to do would be to say, well, if you'll come serve us lunch, you can have some of it. But Boaz doesn't do the normal. Boaz pursues absolute righteousness. He invites her to come eat with them. And then he ends up serving her. 
He makes her gleaning easier. He provides barley for Naomi. Um, he protects Ruth's reputation. I mean, think about that whole scene at the threshing floor. We'll get into it. But that was a risky move for, for Ruth. And, and the fact that Boaz says, let no one say, let no one say anything about Ruth being here shows you that it, that it, it could have ruined, absolutely ruined her reputation of being there. But whatever happened in the threshing floor, Boaz was an absolute um, righteous man with that. A less than righteous man would have said, oh, what a great opportunity. You're here in the dark. Let's take advantage of that. But not Boaz. Whatever temptation is thrown his way, he pursues loyal, steadfast love. And so these are great examples of of three characters who lived in very dark days. So you might think, well, how can I live righteously in such a sexualized culture today? Well, learn from the book of Ruth. You can do it if you rely upon the Lord and seek his his help. Um, You should study Ruth fourthly because it teaches you profound theology. Profound theology. I'll just cover these on a high level. Tragedy and triumph that we see in Ruth are transcendent. What do I mean by that? Meaning Christians throughout the ages have experienced very tragic things. How do you respond when you feel like God is against you? That's Naomi's words. He's against me. God's against me. Naomi knew God was in control. But because of the her emptying, her husband's death, her son's death, going back to Bethlehem uh, in kind of a shameful state, she thought God was against her. So, so the book of Ruth helps us to understand how as a, as a believer in God, how do you respond when you feel like the hand of God is against you? You lost your job. You lost a child. You lost a spouse. Okay? Fill in the blank. How do you feel? How do you respond when you feel like the hand of God is against you? Even if it's not, it feels that way. Well, Naomi helps us. The book of Ruth helps us understand that. Uh, the book of Ruth also teaches us that God is a source of all blessing. Throughout the book, uh, the, the, the characters are calling upon Yahweh. May Yahweh bless you. Um, may, may Yahweh bless you. May Yahweh bless you. Just repeatedly on the lips of the characters. They recognize that God is the source of all blessing. Um, even in Ruth, Ruth... Um, in Ruth 20, I mean, sorry, chapter 2, verse 20, uh, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of Yahweh who has not forsaken his loving kindness to the living and to the dead. And, and though Ruth does, the book of Ruth doesn't really contain any prayer, these wishes for God's blessings represent prayers. Right? Naomi is looking to God uh, to bless the person who is a blessing to, to Ruth. So it's the... This isn't like a verbatim prayer, but it's representative of the prayer that Naomi would have prayed, right? even as she said this. Thirdly, um, you should study Ruth, the, proud, proud, the profound theology that teaches not only that God is the source of all blessing, how to deal with tragedy and triumph, but also we learn about God as faithful, as faithfulness, loving kindness. I've spoken of this in regards to Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, but I wanted to, to point to the source, and that's to, to God. God is faithful. And, and the Hebrew word used there is hesed. 
And I mentioned the word hesed because um, it's, a, it's a good word for you to learn because the word hesed is very difficult. It, it's actually impossible to translate into one English term. Loving kindness, loyal love, faithfulness. Um, let me just read to you uh, what Daniel Block says, uh, Hebrew scholar Daniel Block. He says, the word hesed cannot be translated with one English word. It is a covenant term wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, acts of devotion and loving kindness arising from the heart that go beyond the requirements of duty or law, unquote. It's all these wonderful attributes of God that we depend upon for our very salvation and for Him to supply everything that we need. And it goes beyond the requirements of the law. God doesn't have to do this, but he chooses to do it. Boaz doesn't have to redeem Ruth, but he does. Ruth doesn't have to, to provide for Naomi, but she does. She didn't have to go back with, to, to Bethlehem with Naomi, but she chooses to do so. Right? So it's a, it's a beautiful picture that ultimately points us to God's faithfulness. And then the main, one of the major thrusts of Ruth is the fact that, that God is providentially working all things. He's working out all things. You see this. God, God acts directly in only two places in Ruth, in the beginning and the end. Right? That, that God is only, it's really only a report. Uh, Naomi had heard that God had given his people bread in Bethlehem. But then at the end, God gives Ruth conception. But in between that, it's all providence. Right? So Ruth is a book without miracles. It's, it's, a, it's a book without Fire from heaven. It's it's a book without a prophet. Okay? There's there's no like audible word from God. God doesn't send the angel of the Lord down to speak to people. This is a book of providence. This is a book of normal life. This is how God operates in our lives every day. Okay? He works through providence. Okay? And you ask, what is providence? Um, biblical doctrine defines it this way. God it defines providence as God's care for creation. Involving his preserving, his pre, uh, preserving its existence and meticulously guiding it to its intended ends. The Westminster Confession of Faith defines it this way: God, the great Creator of all, uh, God, the great Creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least. By his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Unquote. In other words, God's sovereign over everything. And he's directing everything in our lives, good and bad. There's God's providence over apparently natural events like the, uh, like the famine, the deaths, of Elimelech and Malon and Kilion. Naomi recognizes this. There's, God's providence includes his hand over apparently chance events. Kind of interesting the way that it's, that it's worded. Ruth just happened to happen upon Boaz's. I mean, it's like, it's like we, we would use in the vernacular, you would say she lucked upon Boaz's field. Well, we know that, that, you know, luck is not, um, a, a, a Theologic, correct theological framework for believers. We know God is directing these things, even though the author is emphasizing that she just happened uh, to happen upon Boaz's field. Um, providence includes God's hand in the schemes of 
of men and women. Right? So although Naomi schemes and comes up with a plan for Ruth to marry Boaz, Boaz could have responded very differently. He could have been shocked. He could have turned her away. But God is controlling all of these things, both the scheming as well as what actually happens. God's in control of all that. I mean, just think about that. I mean, there's such a dichotomy between Ruth and, and Boaz, besides the fact that they're both loyal and faithful people. Um, you know, the fact that, that Ruth would propose to marry Boaz is highly irregular. Uh, Daniel Block says it's highly irregular from the perspective of custom. A foreigner proposing to an Israelite, a woman proposing, propositioning a man, a young person propositioning an older person, and a destitute field worker propositioning a landowner. So from every category, it's just like it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have worked. But God superintended it, and it did. God's providence includes his hand in the legal process. So Boaz says, I'll redeem you, but I'm not the closest redeemer. There's someone yet closer. And, and Boaz doesn't try to work, get, work his way around the system. He works within the system. And so he, he just consistently pursues that. But yet God works through that system, again, to bring about the, the end. And, and really got to see that God is providentially working all these things to bring about the birth of King David. Okay? All of these events. Any, any one of these things would have changed. You wouldn't have King David. That's what the scriptures are saying. God's providence includes all them. God's providence includes his hand in conception and bearing children. That's clear from, from other places of scripture, but Ruth 4.13. God granted her conception and she gave birth to a son. Not only did God give her a child, but she gave her a son who could serve as a redeemer and carry on the line. Not only the line of Boaz and physically, but also from Elimelech. And that's important because that traces the line uh, back then. Uh, to Paris. All that's important. So providence is a major theme of the book of Ruth. And and lastly, you need to, fifthly, you need to study Ruth because it teaches you about your need for a redeemer. There's a sense in which we can put our shoes in Ruth's place. Spiritually, we're bankrupt. We're, we weren't born as Jews within the kingdom. Uh, and even then, Jews are born as sinners as well. But you're born a sinner. You need a redeemer. You're spiritually destitute and dependent upon God to provide a redeemer for you. And he has, and that in Jesus Christ our Lord. But the book of Ruth helps you to understand your great need of a redeemer in a, kind of in a vivid sense as you walk through uh, her story. You can see parallels to your own need of a redeemer in Jesus Christ the Lord. And we think about who is the redeemer in the book of Ruth. Who is the redeemer? Some would say Boaz, but actually, scriptures don't actually. Besides, he's a physical redeemer of, of Ruth. That that is true, right? but the New Testament writers never call Boaz any kind of redeemer. Um, the writer of Ruth at, at least reports that the people of the town of Bethlehem called uh, Obed a redeemer. Obed was Naomi's redeemer. So you can make a case of calling Obed uh, a redeemer. But ultimately, all this is pointing to the fact that we all need a redeemer to purchase us out of sin, right? to rescue us from our sins. So wherever you're at today right, in your walk with Christ, if you're a believer, then rejoice that you have a redeemer who is Jesus Christ, your Lord. And if this morning you don't know where you stand or you're, you're not believing in Jesus Christ, 
I just ask you to look at the great loving kindness of God who is willing to serve as your redeemer, to, to, to forgive your sins, to pay the price of your sins. If you will just reach out to him by faith, believe in him and confess uh, your sins to him, he will become your redeemer and redeem you from all of your sins. This is a big overview of Ruth. I know I went a little long, so thank you for your patience. Now let's pray together. Our Lord, we just thank you for the wonderful story of Ruth. And Lord, I just ask that you would just drive these great truths um, home into our lives to help us um, walk with you, uh, to enrich our understanding of Scripture, and to help us walk in faithfulness. Uh, just as Naomi and, and Ruth and Boaz did in their days, Lord, help us to live with loyal love, steadfast love, pursuing the interest of others as more important than our own. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.